like this morning. I think Mrs. Cindy's doing some things in preparation for Palm Sunday in the back, and so if any of the kids want to go, Todd, not you. I was just talking to Gary. I'm, I'm going to hit my head if I'm not careful here. And then you're gonna, people are going to ask you what killed your pastor and you can just say he was carrying his cross. <laughs> Sorry, that's really bad. Well, let's, um, let's go to our God in prayer. Uh, Lord God, we, we do thank You for this beautiful day. Um, as things start to turn green and uh, life uh, comes back into the, the world and the birds begin to sing. We, we're mindful that, that You are the one that changes the seasons as much as You are who, the one who changes kings and raises them up and brings them down. You are the one who is sovereign over the world. You are accomplishing Your purposes throughout the world. And so, Lord, we, we come before You today. We worship You. We thank You for being a God who is in control of world events as much as You are in control of our life events as much as you're in control of the weather and the seasons and you're a good god and you give good things to us and we're thankful for that father we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering right now that um, are receiving your grace in a time of of tribulation and trial Uh, we think particularly of our friends in ukraine Uh, we have a lot of missionary friends that are over there we have a lot of brothers and sisters in christ that are part of your church that Uh, that is suffering, but finding opportunities to share the Gospel. And so we pray that through these circumstances, that um, above anything else, that the Gospel would go forth and Your name would be glorified. That You would use Your people in a way that would honor You and would be for their good. We pray for their safety. Uh, We pray for their peace. And we pray that You would um, bring about events that, um, that would bring glory to You. And so um, we lift them up this morning. We also want to lift up our, our sister Linda Sullivan as she grieves the loss of her brother this weekend uh, and as her other brothers in hospice. Just pray that you comfort her and be with the family as they grieve their loss and remember their loved ones. Uh, remember your work in their lives. Um, please comfort their family today, we pray. And as we turn our attention to your word, it's my prayer that you would teach us, that you would transform us, that you would make us look more like Jesus as we encounter him in the text today. It's in his precious name we ask this. Amen. Well, this morning, Brent just read for us from God's Word uh, a passage that's about a man who lived 4,000 years ago. And this Abraham encountered an individual by the name of Melchizedek. Now, everyone say Melchizedek with me. I just like hearing you say that. Don't you love that name? It's just some of these names that the Old Testament saints had. Melchizedek. You know, just thinking, um, Dakota, if you guys are looking for names. <laughs> now, this passage in Genesis chapter 14, I've got to be careful how I said that because your husband might take me seriously. No. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, he would do it. Now, this, um, this passage in Genesis chapter 14 is the only passage in the Old Testament that even mentions Melchizedek for the next 1,000 years of Old Testament history. This priest shows up with no introduction. He does this thing, and then nothing is ever said about Melchizedek again until King David comes along, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he once again mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110, which is, as we've seen, the main text of the sermon that Hebrews is built around. And then that's it. No other mention of Melchizedek for another thousand years. Jesus doesn't mention Melchizedek in in, uh, the sermons that we have and the writings that we have. None of the apostles mention Melchizedek. And none of the other prophets mention Melchizedek. At least not in their writings. And then along comes Hebrews, where the author, once again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings up this ancient man, not once, not twice, but eight times in the course of just a few chapters. And he makes it a hinge piece for the book of Hebrews. Another 1,000 years after David wrote Psalm 110. Fast forward 2,000 years. 
to today, and we have a lot of us who have a hard time understanding Hebrews chapter 7. Is that fair to say? Well, you come to Hebrews 7 and go, what is going on here? Who is this guy? And why is he so important in the book of Hebrews? There are many who just avoid Hebrews altogether because of things like Melchizedek. We don't talk about Melchizedek. And part of the reason why Hebrews 7 is challenging for so many is that the author of Hebrews is presenting ideas that made very logical sense to, to a Jewish reader, but which are different from the way we oftentimes think about things and the way we present our arguments here in the Western culture. So if you live in the Western world, which is most of us here, um, it, you know some of this just doesn't quite flow like you would expect it to, but for a Jewish reader, a lot of this said, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. I completely understand what he's saying here. So we're going to try to walk through that today. But as much as the logic seems difficult for us, we need to understand that the Jewish audience of Hebrews had an even more difficult time, a more difficult hurdle that they were trying to overcome as they went through the book of Hebrews and as they did Christianity. I think that it's helpful for us to realize what an incredible paradigm shift there was for the Jewish people then and still is today to some extent. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ crucified and that our message is folly to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, the message of the Gospel was a, a stumbling block. They, they trip over this work that, uh, with, that God did through Christ on the cross and what He was doing in the world. For, for even, even for Jewish Christians, there was this enormous change that they were trying to process, that they were trying to adjust to in their theology and in their practice of following God and worshiping Him. First of all, the fact that we've brought Gentiles into the community. Uh, it, this, this whole idea that Gentiles have come into God's plan in a way that was different from the Old Testament. He always had a pursuit of the Gentile nations. Israel was supposed to be there to be a light to the Gentiles. But, but God was doing something different. And, and now He's brought the Gentiles into the community of faith in a, in a brand new way that just opened the doors wide for, for those outside of Israel. And it, and it shook their worldview. It, it, it transformed the way they thought about so many things. Gentiles became part of the family of God and are now accepted as full members of the community without going through all, a lot of the Old Testament rituals and a lot of the Old Testament traditions. Just read Acts chapter 15 and, and you can see some of those early debates taking place in the church of you know, how were Gentiles supposed to act in the church and what did they have to do in order to be a Christian and could they really be a Christian in the first place? And so there was this paradigm shift. And just as earth-shattering was the reality that Jesus had done away with the Levitical sacrificial system when He fulfilled the law. And so when the book of Hebrews was written, there, was, there were many of these Jewish churches who were very tempted to go back to that old system. Uh, I think maybe we can somewhat understand what that would be like. Um, we, we went through it a couple of years ago um, when we were told you can't do church church has to be canceled. And we had it pretty good here in Iowa, and I think we were only gone for five weeks and went online, and, and so we didn't actually skip church at all. But uh, imagine Jesus coming back and saying, okay, we're going to do everything different now. No more church. No more church. You, you know how, how we felt when that happened two years ago. Imagine Jesus coming back. Imagine God saying, church on Sundays and everything that you've done for 2,000 years, we're not doing that anymore. I have something better for you. We're, we're going to change the system. We're going to change the law. And we're going to create something even better than church on Sundays. A lot of us would have a hard time with that, wouldn't we? Now, imagine what this Jewish audience was going through when a system that they had been practicing for thousands of years and making sacrifices, going to the temple, and, and all their festivals related around this temple, and, and a priesthood from the tribe of the Levites that were spread around the country, uh, spread around their, their towns and their, 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 um, their tribes, and, and all that changes. And so for these Hebrew readers, there's a very real temptation to say, I don't know about all this change that God has brought about when Jesus came and the church started and the, this old system ended. And so thus the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, he continues to make this strong argument for why Jesus is superior 
to all these other things. So understand that as hard as some of the logic seems for some of us Westerners in Hebrews chapter 7, um, it, it was even more difficult for the Jews to wrap their heads around this radical paradigm shift that comes with the Gospel. And so, yes, there are some challenges for us, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be like that. And with some determination on our part, I hope that we can all come to the end of this chapter today with a, a better understanding of the foundation that he's laying for the next few chapters and this argument that, that Jesus is our superior high priest. And then the more that we're able to appreciate the hope and the encouragement that this brought to those who were tempted to go back to this system of priests and sacrifices and temples, then the more we will be able to appreciate the hope and the encouragement that Hebrews brings to us who are tempted to elevate our own systems above Jesus. A culture where we are driven by the worship of entertainment, the, the love of money, the constant need to never stop and rest from our work and our cell phones and all the busyness of life and all of our activities. You, you too and I, we have some things in your life that are competing for your allegiance to Jesus. We have some things that are competing for your worship of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews is a message for you as well. And Hebrews shows us that Jesus is superior to everything. So let's just jump right in. Hebrews 7 moves forward in three main steps. He's going to show us how Melchizedek is superior to Levi in verses 1-10. through Then he's going to go on to show us how this other kind of priest is superior to the Levitical priests in the order of Aaron. And then assuming we can push all the way through the whole chapter of chapter 7 in one sermon, we'll see how this drives home the message that Jesus is our superior hope. Look at verses 1-3. through He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now that's a lot for your brain to wrap around, isn't it? There's a lot happening in those three verses. So we need to talk about Melchizedek. First, everyone say Melchizedek. I really like hearing you say that. Again, he, he, nice, Harry. <laughs> it's almost as fun as saying Nebuchadnezzar. But we won't say his name today. Again, Melchizedek just appears in Genesis chapter 14. He just shows up. Abraham goes and he rescues his nephew Lot from a group of kings that had invaded the land around Sodom. And when he returns to, to, his, to the land and he brings the people back to, to their land and their cities, um, this king shows up. He blesses Abraham and Abraham tithes one-tenth of everything from the spoils and the plunder. And, and then we don't hear about Melchizedek again for another 1,000 years until David writes about this passage in Psalm chapter 110. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1-10 through 10, contains something that we call Jewish midrash, which is just a fancy way of saying Jewish commentary. Uh, the, 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 um, um, the teachers would, would comment on different passages, and so the author of Hebrews is, is doing something similar to other rabbis. It, it was a commentary explaining uh, what we know about this guy. Uh, a lot of it just repeats what we saw in Genesis chapter 14 that, that uh, Brent read for us a few minutes ago. Uh, we're told that he was king of Salem, which later would become Jerusalem. Some, some people would say it was maybe Shechem, but either way, uh, it's one of those major cities in, in Israel. But the important thing to catch throughout these verses is that Melchizedek was a king. And the Hebrew word for Salem uh, is literally peace. Uh, you've heard shalom, Salem, same, same word. And so he's the king of shalom, the king of peace. Um, literally, his name, Melchizedek, it's translated king of righteousness. Melech uh, Sadiq, king of righteousness. And so he's the king of a city named Salem, which means peace. His name means king of righteousness, just in his name itself. 
And so you can see why Melchizedek is significant and is an is a Old Testament figure. He's significant because we, we also know someone, don't we, who is a king of peace? You ever heard of somebody that has that title? Yeah, yeah, some guy named Jesus. Uh, king of peace. And Jesus is also a king of righteousness. And so Melchizedek is an important figure because he's prefiguring Jesus. He's what we would call a type. Um, he's an Old Testament type that prefigures Jesus. Joseph was, is oftentimes considered a type of Christ because there are parallels in Joseph's life that we look at later on and go, oh yeah, we saw that with Joseph and now look how God's doing that in Jesus' life. Um, well, Jesus will not only literally rule from Jerusalem one day, that city of Salem, but He is the King of peace and He, more than anyone else, is the King of righteousness. So you can see how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He prefigures Christ in, in some very significant ways just in the meaning of his names. But not only was Melchizedek a king, he was also a priest. Uh, Genesis chapter 14 and Hebrews chapter 7 both note that he was a priest, the priest of the Most High God. Now just a quick side note, this, this doesn't really have anything to do with Hebrews I don't think, but but uh, something that's, I think, important for us to understand that this passage does show us. One of the things that we learn from this little window into the ancient world is that God was doing more in ancient times and in human history to save people and to work in the lives of people and choosing people. Um, he, he was doing more than He's chosen to reveal to us in the Bible. He, he doesn't tell us everything, does He? There were things going on all over the world that, that God was doing in Abraham's time. And sometimes I think we get this idea that Abraham was the only saved person on the whole planet at that time. And that's just not what the Bible teaches us. And so the events of Genesis 14, they demonstrate that while God had chosen Abraham and He had chosen the nation of Israel, um, the ancient world was not without witness in declaring the glories of our God and the ways of our God. And that's important. That's important for us to remember 4,000 years later because sometimes I think we read things into that history that, well, Melchizedek shows us that that's just not true. Well, back to Hebrews. Remember two things here. Melchizedek was, number one, a king, and number two, a priest. Under Moses and under the Mosaic Law, those two offices, king and priest, they, they never mixed. You never put those together in, in one person. The kings came primarily from the tribe of David, okay? The tribe of Judah, and specifically through the, through the, tribe of, uh, the, the line of David, good. And, and never from Levi. And the priests always came from the tribe of Levi, and never from Judah and David. Melchizedek comes before either Judah or Levi are, are even born, and he held both offices at the same time in one person. And verse 3 notes something else. It says that he is without father or mother or genealogy. And, and I know that there are some who have suggested that this means that he literally was not born. That he literally um, had no genealogy. He did not have a mother. He didn't have a father. Uh, and for that reason, you'll find some people that are going to argue that he was an angel or maybe he was a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus. And so this is actually Jesus appearing in some Old Testament form. Uh, and, and that's possible. Um, I, I don't think that's heretical or anything, but um, I, I think that the author of Hebrews, really what's going on here is he's just pointing out what we see in Genesis. He, he's pointing out the fact that Melchizedek just shows up. If you've read Genesis before, you know there's some really exciting passages in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and, and you get to chapter 11, and you go, to, what do you find? Another genealogy. And, and you go, wow, this is, wow, this is really all these names. Talk about... You know, uh, there's more names for you guys to pick from, you guys. Um, and some girl names too. Um, but read Genesis and you'll note that, that who your parents are is very important. Everyone has a genealogy except Melchizedek. Genesis gives us a genealogy for the Edomites. He shows us the descendants of Ishmael. We even get a list of generations from each one of the sons of Noah but not a peep in the entire book of Genesis or anywhere else in the Bible about who Melchizedek's parents were or what line he came from. And the reason that this, that this is important is that if you were a priest in Israel, 
If you're going to be a priest in Israel, your father and your mother and your genealogy were everything. It determined what office, whether you were a singer or you were somebody that took care of the doorsteps. It determined whether you were a high priest or a part of the people that made the sacrifice. You had to know your genealogy if you were a Levite. If you wanted to be a priest at all, you had to know that you were a Levite. And so, um, genealogy was very important for the line of priests in the Old Testament, but with Melchizedek, we don't know who his father was, we don't know who his mother was, and we have no idea even what son he descended from, from Noah's sons. Also, uh, Hebrews makes the statement regarding Melchizedek as having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And again, the point that he's making is is not that Melchizedek was was and is eternal, but rather that he just shows up. There's no beginning, there's no end. He he just appears in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, he doesn't have a beginning or an end, and God never tells us anything else about him. And unlike the Levites who had age requirements for the priesthood, Melchizedek um, was a priest forever. Uh, The the phrase that's used forever there, here in Hebrews, it's the only time that exact phrase is used. And it conveys this idea uh, particularly of something that's continuous, something that's without interruption. And so the focus here when it says that he was a priest forever just means that he, he kept on being priest. Um, once you hit a certain age, if you were Levite, you're, you're done. You retire. You couldn't be a priest until you were age 30 because the law forbid it. And so um, as a type of Christ, Hebrews notes this comparison and he's going to show us that Jesus also has no beginning or end, but with Jesus, that goes to a different level, doesn't it? Because not only does he not have a beginning like Melchizedek didn't have in Genesis, Jesus' beginning is because he's God. And in a fuller sense, and in an even more incredible sense than even the man Melchizedek, Jesus is eternal. And on the basis of Christ's resurrection from the dead, in an even greater way than Melchizedek, Jesus will serve as our high priest without interruption for eternity. But but I'm I'm getting ahead of myself and we're jumping too far into Hebrews now. So let's let's get back to Melchizedek. But but you can kind of see how this comparison, how he's drawing these things from Genesis and, and, and then he's saying some rather phenomenal things about Jesus Himself. So in Melchizedek, here is a priest that operated under a different set of rules than the Levites did uh, eventually under the, the Mosaic Law, which would come a few hundred years later. His priesthood didn't have pedigree requirements. It, it, his priesthood didn't have uh, term limits or age restrictions. And his priesthood, it didn't have a sabbatical or an election that would end his service and put somebody else in his place. Hebrews goes on in verse 4. It says, see, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers. Though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him and had the prom- who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, we're not going to be able to get into all that. I know there's some of you guys have some, you're going, I have questions. That's great. I can point you to some good resources or I'd be glad to talk to you later on. But in the time we have today, uh, if we're going to finish chapter 7, we're not going to be able to answer those questions or even bring all those questions up. But, but we're going to stick to the main, what the main point is here as we're pursuing what he's talking about throughout Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Abraham, by nature of being the father of, of all the tribes of Israel, he is superior to Levi. Does that make sense? It's going to even make more sense if you're Jewish because that, that's, just, that's a very Jewish argument. But um, Abraham is greater than Levi. Um, and Melchizedek was in a superior position to Abraham on the basis of two things, Hebrews argues. First, Abraham paid respect to Melchizedek by tithing a tenth of the spoils to this king-priest. 
You see, even though Abraham was the one that was chosen by God to be the heir of the promise, and it would be through him that God would bless all the nations of the earth, and his descendants would be numerous as the stars of heaven. We don't hear about the descendants of Melchizedek, do we? But Abraham, we know about his descendants. Even though he was the one of promise, even Abraham recognized Melchizedek's superiority. And Hebrew shows us how the Levites, they also received tithes from the other tribes of Israel. Um, and thus, he has a superior role to the other tribes. But if Abraham is greater than his great-grandson Levi, and Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham, then Hebrews is arguing Melchizedek is superior to Levi. And secondly, as Hebrews points out, who, who is superior when a, a formal blessing is bestowed on someone? When a priest comes and he blesses an individual, um, the one who... Is the one who gives the blessing greater or the one who kneels before the priest and receives the blessing? And verse 7 says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and so was superior in his role. And once again, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Now, we packed a lot into that, and I, I'm sure that you have some questions. And if you have some particular questions, um, feel free to, to ask, and we, we can talk about that. But, but the main point here that he's making is that Melchizedek served in a superior role not only to Levi, but even to Abraham himself, the father of all the tribes of Israel. But I think, that the, the, we, I think we get the main point here that, Hebrew, that Hebrews is establishing where when we're comparing the historical figures of Melchizedek and Levi, most Israelites would say, well, sure, Levi's important. And they would suggest that he's, more, he's, more the, more the, he's the more important individual. But Hebrews shows otherwise and it demonstrates that even though this king-priest was only mentioned two times in the entire Old Testament, he was greater than even Abraham and certainly superior to Levi, the father of all the priests of Israel. Okay, so that's the foundation for the rest of chapter 7. Um, we've got through the hardest part. The author of Hebrews is going to roll the clock forward a thousand years now. We're going to leave Genesis 14 and we're going to arrive back at Psalm 110 where we've been a few times. We've compared the two historical figures and so now he's going to compare these two different kinds of priesthood. Now, and don't forget, don't forget why this is important. The audience of Hebrews is being tempted with this idea that something else is better than Jesus. And so he's showing them from the Old Testament Showing them from the Old Testament that, that how Jesus is, is superior. For them, that something else is this system of, of this Levitical priesthood. And, and I know for you that that something looks different. I, I haven't gone down to the golf course and seen any of you building an altar and, and you know, cutting the throat of a bull and, and making a sacrifice. I don't think any of you have seen that either. Uh, we just, we, we don't, we're not part of that system. And so I understand that when you're reading Hebrews, you're going, yeah, this doesn't really relate a lot. Um, but but hear, what Hebrews, hear Hebrews out and listen to how he continues to develop this, and then we're going to bring that home and, and look at some of those systems in our own lives. Lamini provides some context, and then let's read verses 11 to 17. He's going to start talking about perfection again. He talked earlier in Hebrews about perfection. And when we hear that word, what do we usually think of? If something was made perfect, it was flawed, and it, it doesn't have flaws anymore. It was broken, and it got fixed. Uh, there was something wrong, and it's been made right. And so when Jesus was made perfect through suffering, Hebrews was not saying that he was broken and he needed to be made better. Uh, what, what perfection is in the book of Hebrews, it refers to something that has come to the end of the process. That God had ordained a set of events, a certain mission that needed to be completed, and that person got to the end of it and completed it. And so it's perfection in the sense of, of completing something. Jesus suffered even to the point of death on a cross, and so thus He completed the journey. He finished God's mission for Him. He paid for our sin, and now He can completely sympathize with us because He has gone through suffering in ways that he can relate to all of us. Uh, in, in Hebrews, in the same way, Hebrews is going to show us that the Levitical priesthood could never attain perfection because the priests always 
had to make another sacrifice. There was never an end to it. You'd, you'd sin. What would you have to do? You go down, you make a sacrifice. Every day of atonement, what had to happen? The high priest would have to make some sacrifices, first for himself and then for the people, and he'd go through the curtain and he'd come out, and then somebody would sin. And, well, that started the accumulation that would need atonement the next year. And so every year you had this day of atonement. You had the, the offering of blood, the blood of bulls and, and, and goats, and, and, and there was this constant process of sacrifices over and over and over again. Not only that, but the priests themselves kept dying. They, they, didn't, they couldn't stay alive long enough. Funny how that happens, isn't it? And uh, the journey and the mission could never be brought to perfection through, through the Levites. So let's read. Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one who, of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So again, the big idea here is that the order of Aaron, the father of all the Levitical priests, all the high priests of Israel, that that line could never bring God's plan to completion. It could never bring perfection. could never be attained. But the dilemma is this. In Israel, the, the priests only came from the tribe of Levi, and the, 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 the kings only came from the tribe of Judah, and specifically the line of David after Saul, who was actually from the tribe of Benjamin. But after Saul, they all came from Judah. So how can the Messiah be both a priest and a king? How can those two things be united in one person in the system of the Israelites? Because every time that a king tried to circumnavigate the law and went to the temple and started doing things that the priests did, or when Saul started making sacrifices because Samuel didn't show up, um, God cursed them. He took their, their line away, their throne away. Um, and the, or they got leprosy or, or something happened. And so it was always bad when a king crossed that line and said, I'm going to start doing the work of the priests. So how can the Messiah be both when they were cursed by God when they did otherwise? A king can't just come in and change the Mosaic law. So what would be greater than the Mosaic law? How about the one that made the law? Can God Himself change the law? So the lawgiver can make modifications to the law itself. And He does so in Psalm 110 when Psalm 110 tells us that God made an oath. That's kind of important, isn't it? When, when God Himself makes an oath to somebody, that kind of is greater than the Mosaic Law itself. It is greater than the Mosaic Law itself. So, that's one of the ideas that's revealed by the Lord in Psalm 110. God made an oath. And the Father provided something greater by making an oath to Jesus. And He appointed Jesus as a priest, a high priest, forever. Not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Who, if you remember, was both a king and a priest. So Hebrews tells us that there was a change in the law and that change was made by an oath from the giver of the law. And like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood would continue without interruption. In an even fuller sense, Jesus' priesthood will, will truly continue forever. He will be our high priest for eternity. So, so first of all, if, if you were a Jew being tempted to go back to this Old Testament Levitical system, 
why would you want to abandon Jesus if, if God has provided a better priesthood than the one dictated by the Mosaic Law? Again, if He came to us and said, no more Sunday church, no more Easter, no more Christmas. We're doing away with all those old holidays. Holidays? Holidays. We're doing something better now. It would take some convincing for some of us, wouldn't it? It would take a lot of convincing because those things have been so important to our lives. Well, for this Jewish audience, this sacrificial system and this Levitical system was their life. And so when God comes and changes that and brings in the Gentiles and does church and the Sabbath, you know, it, we move to Sundays and worship on Sundays now. And so there's all these things that are changing. And there's this temptation to go back, but Hebrews says, look, Jesus is better and He brings a better priesthood than, than the one that was dictated by the Mosaic Law. And why would you go back to an old system that never completed God's plan of atonement and when Jesus is the one who attains that perfection for us? Again, remember what Hebrews means by perfection. The law and the order of Aaron, it could never complete God's ultimate plan for redemption. That whole system is limited by the constraints of this world. It's limited by the lifetime of the, those priests. It's limited by the sacrifices that they had to make in, in an external world rather than the heavenly one. That old system could never draw us near to God. This, 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 and he's now he introduces this idea of drawing near. We're going to come back to that in the rest of Hebrews. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to draw near to our God. Could you do that in the Old Testament system? No, a priest did that. The priest is the one that went through the curtain. The, the priest is the one that made that sacrifice and came out and he only did it once a year. You and I, the, the curtain's been torn. It's been opened when Jesus was crucified. Jesus went into the heavenlies Himself and, and He's paved the way so that now you and I can draw near to God. We can come directly into His presence. It's phenomenal what He's done for us. Hebrews is going to note here that Jesus introduces a better hope because He has gone through into the heavenly temple where that where, where that Jesus, He serves as our priest for eternity. Jesus drew near to God Himself. And so Melchizedek was superior to Levi. And in the same way, the order of Melchizedek was superior to the order of Aaron and the Levites. Now watch how He drives it home. And He can conclude by showing some of the specifics of why Jesus provides a better hope. And why we are able to draw near to God rather than have an earthly high priest go through into the temples for us. He says in verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So we have a better covenant that we are a part of because God's oath makes Jesus a better guarantor of our covenant. Well, there's a lot of big words in one sentence, huh? Let me just illustrate with some events from the news from this last month. Uh, the president of Russia has recently made several promises. Does that mean much to you? Okay. <laughs> some of us are scoffing. Um, there are promises to not invade, promises to withdraw troops, promises to allow safe passage for women and children. And while, of course, there's not been any official treaty signed or no document that's signed, uh, offers have been made that if Ukraine does this, then he will do that. But in each one of those instances, we've seen that each offer of peace, each offer of hope, ends up being a ploy to gain leverage and a strategy to implement the art of war. Uh, his covenants, if I can loosely use that term, have no credibility because the one who's guaranteeing the covenants has, lo <laughs> has lost his credibility. He's lied. And he hasn't proven himself to keep his word. In the Old Testament, the, that covenant was also weak. Um, not because uh, God lied or the, or the Old Testament is a lie or that it was, it was bad, but it was limited uh, in, in what it could accomplish. It couldn't attain perfection like Jesus did on the cross. 
But now, through Jesus, we have a better covenant in which we are able to draw near to God Himself. Our implementation of sin in our war with God has been ended by the One who died on the cross in our place. And because God swore an oath to Him, to Jesus, because He swore an oath to Him, our covenant with Him is better than the Old Covenant. That's why we celebrate the old covenant, the New Covenant over the Old Covenant. We call it the New Testament and the Old Testament. When Jesus gave us communion, He said, I, I give to you a new covenant. Um, and, and so that's, that's why all this is so important. And our hope is better because the One who guarantees our covenant, our agreement with God, He holds His high priesthood on the basis of an oath that God made to Him Himself. Does Jesus lie? Will Jesus die? Will Jesus fail? He's not going to change. And God promised in His oath, I'm not going to change my mind about this. Hebrews also says that we have a better hope because Jesus' priesthood is permanent. The former priests were, priests were made. Excuse me. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, that the word that Hebrews uses here it's it's a legal term. That means un, unchangeable. It is a law that cannot be transgressed. Uh, Plutarch is going to use this same term um, when it says the, that he holds the priesthood permanently. Uh, Plutarch in Greek, he used that same term to talk about the sun crossing the sky each day. It, it was a permanent thing that happened. You didn't wake up one day and go, well, where'd it go? I guess it, it took a sabbatical. It took a break. No, it, it was... Forever. It always continued. It, without stop. It was a permanent law. The Son does its thing. And so, thus, in the same way, Jesus continues as our High Priest permanently. And thus providing us with a better hope because Jesus continues forever. <sighs> Amen. You see, our hope is not one in which our sins are forgiven on a temporary basis. Our hope is not one based on a system where God says, I, never mind, I, I changed my mind about this. Our hope is not based on, on a human priest who, who is filled with sin himself that can't save us. All because Jesus is our High Priest for eternity. We have the guarantee that there will not come some point millions of years into eternity when we're in heaven. We've been there for a million years worshiping and, and doing everything that's going to be so glorious and so incredible. We're not going to come to some point a million years from now and finally say, you know what? Let, let's lead a rebellion like Satan did. Let's, let's do all this over again. You ever thought about that? Will, will there be some time where something could change? Where you know, Satan fell? Can we? A million years from now? Ten million years? A billion years? It's a long time. Eternity. Will there come a point where something can change way down the line and, and maybe this whole salvation thing billions of years into eternity? No. Forever. The same One who accomplishes our redemption on the cross is the same One who promises to complete that good work that He started in you. And He is the same One who will serve as your intercessor and your High Priest not just during your lifetime here on earth, not just until the end of earth and the new heavens and the new earth are established, He is going to serve as your high priest for eternity. Always allowing you to draw near to this amazing God that we worship. Always providing you access through Him. Hebrews concludes chapter 7 by reminding us of what he said back in chapter 5. Remember how we talked about bookends? Uh, you, you, you put some books on a shelf and you need to hold things up. Uh, and, and in Hebrews, uh, he's going to give us some bookends to kind of show us, okay, here's, here's the end of a section. He started that back at the beginning of chapter 5 and, and now we come to a small bookend in the middle of the shelf. 
If you remember in our introduction of this concept of Jesus being the high priest, we discussed four qualifications. We talked about Jesus' interview. Four qualifications for Jesus to, for anybody to be a high priest, even Jesus. He's going to repeat those here and show us how Jesus has met those qualifications. He's exceeded them, and then he's going to talk about the implications of that over the next couple chapters of having a high priest like Jesus. But the basic job qualifications for every high priest, included, including Jesus, were these. Number one, he was supposed to be chosen from among men. Did Jesus meet that qualification? Okay, one person believes that. Okay, did Jesus meet the qualification? Was Jesus chosen from among men? Absolutely. Okay, Jesus humbled himself by becoming lower than the angels, and then he lived a sinless life. He lived as the perfect man. And verse 26 demonstrates how he was chosen from among us as the best of us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. The second qualification, he, he was to be chosen to represent the people. And because Jesus was chosen from among men, He can serve as our high priest and He can represent us. And verse 26 continues by saying that He was also exalted above the heavens. There He intercedes for us today. He represents you and I in heaven. And He will do that for eternity. The third qualification, He's to be chosen to sympathize with the people. He's beset with weakness. It talks about the priests in the Old Testament. Verse 27 says, He had no, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. And so Jesus was, He became weak and He suffered and Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross and He perfectly understands our weakness even though He remained without sin and didn't have to make sacrifices for Himself. But fourthly, the fourth requirement is he needs to be chosen by appointment. Only God appoints the high priest. A person can't say, hey, I want to run for that office. Elect me. And you go from county to county and tell everybody, here's why you need to elect me. No, God, God, cho God cho chose the Levitical priests and, and the sons of Aaron. There's a system that God established. In the same way, under the order of Melchizedek, God established Jesus as our high priest. Verse 28 says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath... What oath are we talking about? S Psalm 110. All right. And, and this, this oath that God made to Jesus. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a Son who has been made perfect forever. Our high priest was appointed not by his lineage, but by God's oath that made Him our high priest for eternity. Our high priest has drawn us near. Jesus is our superior hope. But the Hebrew Christians were being tempted to believe that the Levitical system could offer them something better. Something that would draw them near to God's presence. In the same way, your culture and your system that you live in it floods your life with, with temptations. And again, I know that none of you are going out making sacrifices and, and, and trying to reinstitute the Levitical priesthood. I don't think any of you are. But there's a lot of things in our lives where we have these somethings saying, draw near here. I'll, I'll bring you satisfaction. I'll bring you rest. I, I will complete your life. Again, entertainment. Work, money, people, women, men. So many temptations that come your way. Some things that say, I'm better than Jesus. I will provide your heart's longing in a way that Jesus cannot. But it's all a lie. And just like the Levitical system was constrained by the limitations of this world that we live in and the externals of this world because it couldn't cross into the heavens, there's nothing on this earth that can provide you the promise of an eternal hope. One that lasts forever. That goes beyond this lifetime. There is no something that can provide any basis for any true hope or for any true rest in your life. It, it all extends and reaches out and says, here, take this. And it never satisfies. Not in the way that you're longing for it. It's a lie. 
There's no something that can provide any basis for any true hope or any true rest. And the only one who can draw us near to the very throne of God Himself is the one who intercedes for us for all eternity. The one who was appointed as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The one who died on a cross for your sin. The one who took your place and, and paid the penalty. Took on God's wrath that you could not pay. You could never satisfy that any more than the Levitical priests could. But Jesus did that. And if you have trusted Him by faith, through faith, if you've received God's grace because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, if you believe in Him, then He is your high priest today. You have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek who intercedes for you. And He is our God. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we adore. And so let everything else fade away into the far distance and be forever forsaken for what those somethings are. For nothing, they are nothing compared to the immeasurable glory of our High Priest, Jesus, the King of Righteousness. Father, we thank You for Hebrews 7. Lord, we know this is, this is a difficult passage. A lot of us have struggled through Hebrews. We've added some challenges here. Uh, Lord, we, I'm sure we all have some more questions. We'll continue to study it. We'll continue to pray for Your Spirit's illumination. Father, I pray that this realization though that we have a high priest that is greater, that the implications would not only be realized as we continue to read and study the book of Hebrews, but that those implications would be realized in our lives. That we would understand how great this is of what Jesus has done and who He is. And how that allows us to draw near to You. Even right now as we're praying together. So thank You. Father, as we come to Your table and celebrate communion, I, I just pray that, that we would rejoice now. That we would truly give thanks because of this new covenant that You've provided. Please use this time we pray. Amen. If the men would come forward, please.